I'm having a little back soreness, but no concern. I'll explain why. Um, so this week, Jimmy Edmondson and I got together and went down to the fire department uh, to meet with the fire officials to go over um, some of the criteria for that mystical beast we call uh, the new building. Um, and um, so we got all the numbers and we went outside and we were trying to figure out exactly what they were looking for. So we stood outside uh, by our cars and got our calculators out and we did the numbers. And then, um, then we left. Um, well, a little bit later, I get a phone call from Jimmy and he said, um, do you have your iPad? And I said, why? He said, well, I was going down 93 at about 75 miles an hour. Um, and um, and I, I could have sworn I saw this thing fly off my roof and hit the ground 75 miles an hour. Um, and all of a sudden, I, I, I looked over my seat and I thought, oh. And then I, I, I remembered when we were standing there going through the numbers that I had put it on top of his roof. And then I remembered all the numbers coming to my head how much it's going to cost me for a new one. <clears throat> and there's nothing more frustrating when you do something like that because you know you know deep down inside that you should have been more alert. You should have paid more attention. You should have, you know, situational awareness and all that stuff. Yesterday I was coming back from New Jersey. And, um, and it was a long ride. I, uh, my, my son Tim went with me. Good boy. Slept through the whole thing. Um, <laughs> and we left at 2 in the morning and, and uh, got to where we were going at about... Uh, Eight in the morning, and there was a quick turnaround, and we were back on the road driving back, and I was exhausted. And as I was driving, all of a sudden, traffic just backed up. And and just a few minutes, actually, and I was thinking, what the heck is this? And as we got closer, I could see all of these police cruisers, state police all over the place. And as I got closer, I, I saw a bunch of them taking measurements of a car that was just mangled. I mean, it was hit, spun around, facing in the opposite direction. Literally, one of the wheels, uh, the wheel on the right passenger front side was off, and it was on the other side of the car. First time I'd ever seen an engine removed from a car. And, and it was clear to me with all the uh, troopers there and all the measurements that, that the person had died. And I thought to myself, that could have been me a million times on that ride. Just 
not paying attention and getting too close to somebody or at times uh, tired and not quite awake and definitely should have pulled over and and gotten some rest it should have been it should have been me it could have been me complacency you know there's no better word for it um and the consequences of it are a powerful, powerful thing. Think about um, the consequences it has in your life. Uh, the times in your life where, where you've just gotten complacent, you've just gotten overly content when there was no reason to. This morning, we're going to look at complacency as we look at one of the minor prophets, as we look at one of the major messages from one of the minor prophets. This morning, we're going to look at uh, the prophet um, Amos. Amos um, is a, a prophet who I came to know early in seminary because one of my first major exegetical papers that I had to do, and it was a big one, was on Amos. Um, and um, I fell in love with the guy. And, and in fact, literally, I, I can remember as I'm, as I'm reading and doing the research, sitting there munching on my fig newtons, finding out that Amos was a fig farmer. Then, of course, I thought, I wonder if he discovered the fig newton. Um, <laughs> He didn't, um, and, and actually, the, the the truth of the matter is, um, figs were uh, something that the poor ate. They weren't what rich people ate. Uh, Amos was a farmer. Uh, he he grew figs, and he also took care of cattle. But he was a a, a man of the earth. He was a, a, a person who, who knew what it was like to walk amongst uh, the lower classes of the earth. He was the perfect man for the job that God had picked him for, for the job that God had called him to. This morning, we're going to look at what he tells us about complacency what he tells us about the worst kind of complacency. You know, when you, when you think about it, you know, we know complacency can be deadly. I mean, think about going into surgery and having a surgeon who's complacent, you know, who, who does it and says, you know, good enough, could be better. I don't really have the time, but you know, it's good enough. Or, or an airline pilot. You know, he's up there, the sky's blue, it looks great. And he just thinks, this is great napping time. I mean, think about complacent parents who their kids are about to drink poison and they say, you know, tomato, tomato, poison, porridge, whatever. 
I mean, it's ridiculous, but the nature of being complacent is deadly. You see it in complacent marriages where people just get lazy, where people don't put out much effort. You see it uh, in, in complacency in jobs where people just kind of become what we call deadwood. You see it in churches. Uh, pastors who don't want to lead in people who are too busy to follow. You see it all around you. You see it in yourself. In all sorts of different ways with all sorts of different attitudes. This morning, we're going to look at what Amos says about complacency. Um, I want us to look at the um, verse one in chapter one. In fact, if you can put, pull that up. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam was son of Joash, uh, was king of Israel. Now, this is about this is eight BC, and um, and right now at the time that Amos is writing, it was a good time. Uh, Jerob, um, Jeroboam had been king for probably, I think it was forty-one years was his reign, longer than than any of the other kings. Um, he had won a succession of wars against other nations. The country was in this economic boom. Everybody who was anybody was prospering. Life was good. And God sent a prophet from the southern part of Israel to go speak to the people of the northern part of Israel. Why would God do that when life is good? Well, he did it because while life was good, the king was corrupt. Not only was he corrupt, he was evil. And not only was the king evil, but most of the people had become evil. In fact, look what we read in verse 3. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Now, uh, let me stop here. This is what the Lord says. Uh, back up. Back up. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Now, right away, when someone's writing to you and they start off with this, you know it's not a good thing. Especially if, if you were the people of that time living in that time, they knew a few things about lions. They knew that lions were creatures not to be trifled with. 
they knew that when lions roared, it was sending out a warning to people that this is my turf and I'm in control of it. And anyone who disrespects it, anyone who tries to thwart it will deal with me. And so Amos, a fig farmer, who God called, writes to the people, and the first thing he says is, God is roaring at you. And and not only is he roaring, he says, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Thunder means to speak. And so not only is he roaring, warning the people, but he is speaking to the people in a thunderous way. You can pick up the anger from him. In fact, he says, in such a way that the pastures dry up and, and the top of the mountains wither when he speaks. That's a pretty powerful thing. God comes to the people of Israel and he speaks to them but when he speaks, he roars at them. Look at, uh, next slide, chapter two of Amos. Uh, was, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Next slide. They, die, they lie down beside every altar, uh, excuse me, they lie down beside every altar and garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Next one. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and command the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. Now, so let me just back it up here. What's the problem? He says, this is what you guys have done. You people who have become so well off and so comfortable you become comfortable to the point that you hurt the righteous you oppress the poor you assault the innocent you blaspheme those things that are sacred and the people who are there to speak for you to me, the people who are there to pray, the people who are there to intercede, you say, we don't want any part of it. What happened was this. The people of Israel had gotten complacent. They had come to that place where they said, you know what? We don't really need God. We're sufficient in ourselves. I want to I give you a definition of complacency. 
Uh, you can't see that. I love that picture. It's, it's um, a deer coming to drink water next to a lion. Can you imagine if you were a lion and all of a sudden a deer came next to you to get a drink? You'd be like, what is he thinking? Is he that complacent thinking he could just come over here and drink? Well, that's what we do with God. Complacency, a smug or uncritical satisfaction accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. That is what it means to be complacent. It means to come to this point, to the point where you just, you think everything's okay when it's not okay. They treat the righteous poorly. (laughs) They oppress the poor. They show no justice to the oppressed. They treat the sacred as blasphemous. And they cut off communication with God. All because things are going well for them. And they justify it all. Think about your own life. Think about your walk with God when you've become complacent. When you do what you shouldn't do, when you minimize what God's word clarifies. When you look at your wealth or your health or your popularity and you say everything must be good because I'm doing well. They justified their complacency and God roared. Why? Let me share a principle with you. When we don't desire God first, our desires make us last. When we don't desire God first, our desires make us last. See, here's the deal, and here's the problem we have as human beings. We get so caught up in our lives and what we want, and accumulating things, and trying to avoid problems, trying to be happy, that we just keep moving in the opposite direction of God, and yet we think everything's okay. My son and I were talking a bit yesterday, and we are just, just talking about how the world views God, and and why, and, and, and the issues people ask, like, why doesn't God listen? Why doesn't God care? Because the assumption is, God doesn't care. If bad things happen, God doesn't care, or he's not powerful enough, or he's not real, or he's just messed up. We never think it's us. We look and we say, God, everybody's crying out to you. Everybody's got problems. Everybody's got illnesses and diseases and everybody's just trying to make it in this world and, and where the heck are you? 
The problem is not where is God? The problem is where are we? You see, the issue is this. It's not that God is disengaged from you. It's not that God doesn't care for your good. That's not the problem. It's not that God isn't active in the things of this world. He is. Every single day. The problem is we're over here. The problem is we have our head in the sands. The problem is every day we're walking way out over here and meanwhile God is working his perfect plan. And we get complacent. We get complacent when things are bad and we say he doesn't care, he's not powerful enough, he's not real, he's messed up. Or we get complacent because things are good and we say, well, they're good because we elected the right president. Uh, They're good because um, we elected the right congressman. They're good because I worked hard this year. It was for my effort. Uh, Things are good because I've gotten sharper in how to play the game in this world and, uh, and move the pieces around the board. And so, in my smug self-sufficiency, I give myself over to complacency, thinking it's all good because it's the work of my hands. And when it's not good, it's the failure of God. And God roars because we're not even close to him anymore. We're so far away from him, all we can judge do is judge him from being far away from us. And God roars. When we don't desire God first, our desires will make us last. It's just the truth of the matter. I, pe- I see people for counseling and every week I hear the same stuff. I just wish God would give me a husband. Then others, I wish God would take my husband. <laughs> you know, if, if, if God would just give me this job, it would, it would all be good. You know, if, if God would heal me of this illness, if God would, would help me at work in this impossible situation. But they're looking for God to build his life around them, not for them to build their lives around him. I tell everyone, if you wake up in the morning with a roof over your head, 10 fingers and 10 toes, you're good. You're good. Life is good. Because you have the ability to serve God and to be grateful for a roof over your head. We don't look at it that way. 
we look at what we have and we say, okay, God, what now? What else? I want more. And it's all about us and it's never about him. And the more we follow our desires of what we want, they kill us. And they move us from the one we should want. You know, I, I, I forget what book I was reading in a couple years ago, and, and I love what it said. If you could live forever on this earth with your needs met, would you still want Jesus? I don't know. The way we're built as people, the scary part is, I think we could easily just be content with having our needs met and, and not look to something bigger and more glorious. It means coming back to the fact that it doesn't matter whether my needs get met or not, whether I live or whether I die. It's understanding that there's a God who loves me and there's a God who calls me. There is a God who is merciful but a God who is just. A God who doesn't want me just to enjoy the poison around me, but a God who wants to straighten me and make me something better than, than I can even imagine. We've got to move away from just what we desire and move back to desiring God. If not, our desires will kill us. At the end of our lives, our desires will not save us. I want to share a little clip with you right now. And uh, this is probably one of my favorites. God tried to stop me from killing an innocent man and I ignored the sign. How can I even hope for forgiveness? I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. Which means what? That maybe your guilt over these deaths has become your reason for living. And maybe you need a new reason to go on. I, I, I don't want to go on. Can't you see? I'm old. I have cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that is holding me back is that I am afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. And what do you think that is? Oh, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. 
So people can do anything? They can rape, they can murder, they can steal all in the name of God and it's okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, what are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one size fits all crap. Hey, Dr. Truman. No, <laughs> I don't have time for this now. Greg, it's okay. Look, I understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. How could you possibly say that? Now you listen to me. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself... No, I don't need to ask myself. I need answers. And all your questions and your uncertainty are only making things worse. I know you're upset. God, I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. I'm trying to help. Well, don't! Just get out! Get out! Get out! In his desperation, you can hear the roar of God, can't you? You can hear that, that roar that says there's got to be more than platitudes. There has got to be something real. I need a God who is powerful, not a God who is playful. I need a God who, who cares and is willing to correct I need a God who will come into my world and make it make sense, not just add sense to my wallet. I need a God who can help me know that cancer isn't the problem. And he's the answer. See, that's what God was saying through Amos. You people have become so complacent, so large and in charge in your own heads. And now for your sake, judgment will come. I will pour out my wrath upon you to correct you. And he did, he sent the Assyrians who took them into slavery and then the Babylonians and then the Persians because they wouldn't listen. You know, the power of, of what God was doing and saying to them wasn't just judgment. It was a call back. And if they had relented, he would have relented. And even in the end, the last verses of Amos are verses of restoration for a people who come full circle. How do we go back to making God first? How do we go back to realizing that our desires will only make us last if we don't make him first. Number one, repent. 
repent means. You pour yourself before God. You acknowledge nothing good in me and, and everything I have is from you. You acknowledge that you can't keep going the way you're going. You acknowledge that as, as you've searched through your life, you've come to realize it's all garbage. I'm 56 years old. I've owned cars. I've, I own a house. I've had nice vacations. I've met some important people. None of it was nirvana. None of it was, well, that's it. I'm good. I can just live content from... It was all empty. That's why we don't do it. When people scratch my car, I don't care. Yeah, no, I've, I've experienced it. I, I care for stewardship, but it's a car, it's going to come and go. And at my age, probably the next one will be around after I come and go. Money. Hamburger still tastes like a hamburger even after your first million. The only thing that matters is God. And feeling and experiencing and walking in the power of his love and the confidence and knowing his sufficiency. But if if you don't turn away from what it is that you're making an idol, if you don't turn away from the desires that you're making first that will make you last, then you'll just become more and more arrogant, more and more disobedient, more and more distant. You have to come to that point where you realize, all I want is God. The rest of it's window dressing. Two, repent, realign. Give yourself and allow yourself to be realigned. Whatever God wants for me is what I want. Because you know what? What he wants for you is better than what you want for you. And what he wants for you is not to make you miserable. God created you. God created you because he had a plan for you that is good for you and a plan for his glory. And God's plans won't be thwarted. And if you realign yourself with him, he will take you on a journey that you'd never go on before. Realign. Number three. Resolve. To resolve every day. God is first. And I'm okay with being last before him. 
Not before anything else, but before him. Because if he's first, I'll care about what he cares about and therefore I'll love the things that he loves and the people he loves. If he's first, I won't worry about meeting my needs because I know he's already got them met. Resolve every day because you have to. It's so easy to go off track. It is so easy. God created the nation of Israel with your blessing and they end up becoming a curse to themselves and everybody else. That's why he sent his son. It was all part of God's plan in showing us we can't do it ourselves. We have to depend on him. Resolve number four. Remember. Uh, re-engage. Re-engage means go do something. And Amos, later on in the chapters, what he, what he tells the people is, look, you, you need to seek God. You need to humble yourselves. And you need to go and do good. Re-engage. How engaged are you in God's will right now? How engaged are you in doing the things that matter to him? The way you spend your money. If God had to sit down with you right now and go through your checkbook, would you cringe? Would he roar? Would you feel embarrassed? Or would you say, God, look at my checkbook. I really believe I've, I've, I've done everything with what I have to show that you matter most. Number five. To remember that while God loves you, he won't be disrespected by you. He won't be treated as a playmate. He won't be cast to the side. Why? Because he's just a jealous, selfish God? No. Because it's death to you if he allows it, and he won't. Remember that he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And when you move away from his love, he will roar. Sometimes he'll, he'll roar just to wake you up. Sometimes he'll roar to shake you up, to, to get the priorities right. Sometimes he'll roar to break you up because that's what has to happen. But make no mistake about it. God is both lion and lamb. He is both peace and calm and serenity and he is a raging wind that you can't stop. He's a force you can't fathom. <clears throat> and he's a God who in his love won't be trifled with. Good news about my iPad is... Um, I had written it off. I thought, well, that's it. I thought, well, should I go look for that 
I'll never find it. So I started thinking about the ways that I could cut food for the kids and um, you know, <laughs> get money to buy a new one. And um, God bless Jimmy. He went back, at this time at five miles an hour, and just kept driving next to the medium looking for it until he saw it. And then he picked it up. Good testimony for iPad. It was still working, even though the screen was cracked. And, um, and he left it at my door. And when I saw it, I thought, I got Apple Care. They'll replace it. Life is good. I can be complacent again. Yeah, that could very well happen again. Or I could smarten up. I could gain some wisdom. You know, one thing I was thinking, that's what Jesus does for us. He goes out and gets for us what we couldn't get for ourselves, don't know how to, beyond our grasp in our heads, and he, he gives it to the Father, and he brings us back something new. He makes us something new. And with that newness, we can live in newness if we choose to. Complacency is what happens right before everything falls apart. Please join me in prayer.